You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. Hello everyone and welcome to History of the Second World War, episode 30, the Third Reich, part 16, We're Living in a Society. This week, a big thank you goes out to Shrinik and Gary for choosing to support this podcast on Patreon, where they now get access to special ad-free versions of all of these episodes and special Patreon-only episodes released once a month. If that sounds interesting to you, head on over to historyofthesecondworldwar.com slash members to find out more information. When they achieved power, there were many ways in which the Nazi party leadership hoped to alter the course of the German nation. Many of these related to Germany's relationship with other nations, both economically and militarily, but there were also goals that dealt with items far closer to home. Some of these we have already discussed and will continue to discuss for almost the entire length of this podcast, such as anti-Semitism and the racist overtones of many Nazi policies. There were also societal goals that they hoped would shape German society in many ways. To accomplish these goals, the Nazi regime would alter the contents of what the German children learned in school, the the relationship that Germans had with the church, the relationship between people and social organizations, how they displayed their feelings about the party and the government through flags and uniforms, and a whole host of other alterations that all revolved around the Nazi leaders trying to assert more control over the private life of every citizen of Germany. They then hoped that this would allow them to mold Germany and all of the individuals within it into a very specific vision of what it meant to be German and what German society should be. Those goals and the efforts to attain them will be the topic of this episode. When it came to German culture, the objective of the Nazis was to make the government the sole arbiter of what did and did not qualify. This began very soon after they had taken power in early 1933. A few episodes ago, we discussed the Law of the Restoration of the Professional Civil Service, which removed many Jewish individuals from the ranks of the civil service. It would also require the immediate dismissal of any non-Aryans from state-subsidized cultural institutions, like theaters and museums. This was just one part of a campaign that rejected almost all of the cultural evolutions that had occurred in Germany after the First World War. The 1920s had been a period of drastic changes within German culture. Experimental art and jazz and theater, film, all had blossomed during the Weimar Republic. All of those were then rejected, and much of it would be destroyed by the Nazi regime. Perhaps the most famous of these actions were the book burnings that would occur in Germany during and after 1933. 
For example, on May 10th, 1933, 20,000 books would be burned outside the University of Berlin Library, an act which thousands of students would participate in. This would be just one of many book-burning events that would occur during this period in Germany. Various forms of art were also heavily targeted, and thousands of paintings, drawings, and sculptures were either destroyed or confiscated, and around 17,000 works would be seized before the start of the war. There was a special hatred for many varieties of modern art, which Hitler personally disliked. In September 1933, a new group was set up within the government, the Reich Chamber of Culture, and it was given the purpose of, quote, in order to pursue a policy of German culture, it is necessary to gather together the creative artists in all spheres into a unified organization under the leadership of the Reich. The Reich must not only determine the lines of progress, mental and spiritual, but also lead and organize the professions. All of these actions and the control that the government tried to exert on these aspects of culture would cause a massive exodus of artists, writers, and others involved in the creation of German art. Around 2,000 artists of various types would make the journey out of Germany to escape the fact that if they wanted to create art in Germany at this time, it had to be specifically approved for production. Such government control would also affect the newspapers. Before 1933, Germany, like many other nations, had a thriving newspaper industry. However, in the years after 1933, circulation of papers began to decline, and the total number of newspapers being printed decreased by almost a thousand. Even Nazi party newspapers were not immune to this drop in desire to actually read them. The biggest issue was simply that so much of what was allowed to be published was controlled and specified by the propaganda ministry. This allowed for control over what was printed in the same way that the content of radio was controlled, but it caused many Germans to simply stop reading since everybody was printing the same thing. The relationship between the German government and the churches of Germany was, well, it was complicated. On July 20, 1933, the Vatican and the German government had signed a concordat, which formalized an arrangement whereby the Catholic clergy would withdraw from German politics. This essentially destroyed the Zemstrom, the Catholic center party, and in return the German government agreed to always recognize the Catholic faith and to not interfere with the actions of the church. The agreement also included an oath to be loyal to the German state, which all the clergy would have to swear when they took up their positions around Germany. Almost immediately after the Concordat was signed, the Nazi leaders would begin to first test the limits of its clauses, and then they would eventually completely ignore them. Early efforts to push the Concordat would come to the forefront in September 1933, when the oath that was taken by German clergy was altered for both Catholic and other Christian faiths. This change meant that instead of swearing an oath of loyalty to Germany, it was also expected that Hitler and National Socialism would be included. This would prove to be far too much for some clergy, and there would be many that refused to take the oath which resulted in their removal from their positions. These type of actions continued throughout the 1930s as the government pushed back against Catholic control and Catholic influence in many areas of German life. Eventually, in January 1937, a collection of German bishops and cardinals went to Rome to discuss the problem with the Pope and to tell him what was happening in Germany. This would result in an encyclical, a papal letter, which would be sent to all German Catholic officials, entitled Mit Brindender Sorge, or With Burning Concern. It would, when 44 clauses, criticize the German government's interactions with the church, giving a litany of examples of how it had violated the Concordat. 
However, the criticisms in the letter went beyond specific actions or policies, but would also question and condemn some fundamental concepts of Nazi policies, like racism. For example, Clause 11 would say, quote, None but superficial minds could stumble into concepts of a national god, of a national religion, or attempt to lock within the frontiers of a single people, within the narrow limits of a single race. It is, however, interesting and a common point of criticism that the document does not directly name the Nazi regime, or Hitler, or National Socialism. This has caused many, both at the time and in the years that followed, to criticize the Church for not more strongly condemning specific actions, beliefs, or individuals who pushed those beliefs and turned them into actions. 300,000 copies of the encyclical would be secretly printed and distributed throughout Germany, to be released on Palm Sunday 1937. When he was notified of the encyclical and its contents, Hitler was apparently furious, and the next day all copies that could be found were confiscated, and printing presses that had assisted in their creation were closed. As much as possible, the national press and the government simply suppressed as much information as it could about the contents of the letter, and it did not cause a drastic change in Nazi policies towards the Catholic Church, and if anything, it just made everything worse. Its relations with the church would be just one area where the Nazi regime would alter its course after coming to power. Another would be in the role that women would play in society. So much of Nazi rhetoric during the party's rise to power and then in the time between 1933 and 1934 revolved around restoring the traditional German family, and that meant restoring the traditional place of women within that family. This was a direct reaction to the feminist movement that took place during the Weimar years, which saw many women break away from the roles traditionally set aside for them as wives and mothers. This was attacked in Nazi rhetoric, and in September 1934, Hitler would say in a speech, quote, The phrase, women's liberation, is a phrase invented by Jewish intellectualism, and its contents is shaped by the same spirit. The German women never needed to be emancipated in the really good times of German life, for her world is her husband, her family, her children, and her home. End quote. The government would instead focus on a very specific view of what women were supposed to do within society, and most of that view revolved around one thing having babies. This was initially wrapped in the bounds of a traditional family, but as the years progressed, the emphasis on starting a traditional family receded into the background, and the focus became solely on procreation. Families were given loans and tax breaks based on the number of children they had, and there were even public awards created in 1938 for mothers of four, six, and eight children, the Mother's Cross of Honor. All of this was of course steeped in the values of the party, with such an emphasis placed upon reproduction due to the perceived place of the resulting, quote, Aryan children in the future of Germany. Initially, women were also discouraged from working in many jobs outside the home, partially due to the unemployment crisis of the early 1930s. They were still mobilized for various public service activities, and they were allowed to take very specific types of jobs, but they were mostly forbidden from working in several sectors of the economy. This began a drastic shift after 1935, because it was in that year that the government began its major rearmament program, and for that program, it needed workers. It needed a lot of workers. These could not all come just from the men in Germany, especially as the size of the armed forces quickly ballooned under conscription, and so women were once again mobilized into the workforce. This would completely shift the Nazi message from one of traditional motherhood to a message that these women were needed in the factories, and so between 1933 and 1939, two million more married women would be working outside the home. 
This resulted in a situation for many women and mothers who were forced to do exactly what the Nazi leaders had claimed had been such a problem in 1933, balancing work outside the home with taking care of their families. This would of course only become more stressful as the war approached and the German military continued to expand. Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. Any attempt to change German society over a long-term period of time required that the education system in Germany be shifted to support those changes. The Nazi leaders fully understood this fact, and there would be multiple changes made to the education that was experienced by German children. The first was based around ensuring that teachers at all levels would not be an avenue of anti-Nazi feelings that could be delivered to children. Hitler was personally not a huge fan of professional academics, and this was reflected in the treatment of teachers and professors by the regime. All teachers had to take an oath of loyalty and obedience to the party and to Hitler, much like the oaths that were being used in other areas of society. There was not a large amount of dissent from teachers to these actions after 1934, if only because by that point 15% of all university professors had already been removed from their positions, with similar dismissals made at other levels of education. There was also strong support for Nazi policies among older students, especially at universities around Germany, and this added local pressure on educators to toe the party line. What dissent that did exist was often expressed in the form of very specific criticisms of specific choices that had been put in place by the government. This specificity was crucial because it avoided a wider criticism of Nazi beliefs and practices which would have been seen as seditious. Most educators in Germany would not fall foul of the regime and they would remain in their positions. The exception to this was of course Jewish academics and teachers, which made up about 12% of all professors in Germany in 1933. Several prominent academics, including Nobel Prize winners like James Franck, Hans Krebs, and of course Albert Einstein, were either pushed out of their positions or forced to resign. Along with ensuring the loyalty of those teaching children, efforts were also made to ensure that what they were teaching was deemed to be correct. To accomplish this, textbooks were largely rewritten. History was altered to fit within Nazi ideology, creating a completely false perspective on both the German and world history. New subjects like racial sciences were added to the curriculum to indoctrinate young Germans into the racial policies of the Nazi party. Mein Kampf was included as part of this instruction, which if you've ever tried to read it should only be considered as a punishment. 
The goal of all of these changes to the educational content was to essentially push propaganda to all Germans at the earliest possible opportunity, and when they were most vulnerable to that propaganda. The results of all of these efforts was, well, it was pretty catastrophic in terms of the quality of education in Germany, and the quality of the resulting students. In later years, this was felt at all levels of the workforce. In the chemical industry, which was absolutely critical to rearmament, there were complaints that Germany was losing what had once been a solid lead on the rest of the world in certain chemistry disciplines. The large chemical firms would claim that this put at risk not just the national economy, but also national defense given the importance of the chemical industry to the German war effort. They put the blame on the drastic shortage of new scientists and the very disappointing quality of those that were graduating in the late 1930s. During these later years, it was also difficult to find enough people who completed university. The universities had always been a very fertile feeding grounds for the Nazi party. They had found a lot of members there because of the economic issues in the early 1930s, which left them with little prospect of employment after their studies were over. And then later in the 1930s, many young people and also university graduates were siphoned off into the army and other state-led forces in ever-growing numbers. So many men were leaving for military training that there were enrollment problems for higher education. Their places were also not filled with young women because of the emphasis on returning women to their more traditional role within the family. But the military was also not immune to the problems that were being experienced in terms of educational quality for individuals exiting their mandated years and then also in university. By the late 1930s, many military officers were beginning to register complaints about the recruits that they were receiving, and especially the education that they had experienced. Between 1932 and 1938, university enrollment in Germany would decrease by half, but the percentage of those students who were women would also be reduced in half. Many students, those who were aware that their education had been compromised, placed at least some of the blame on all of the other activities that they were expected to participate in while at school. This would rob them of any available time to study outside of school, and was due at least partially to the obsession with physical fitness which would become a policy of the regime, stemming straight from Hitler. He would make this emphasis clear as early as Mein Kampf, stating, quote, The whole education by a national state must aim primarily not at its stuffing with mere knowledge, but at building bodies which are physically healthy to the core. End quote. With the goal of building bodies, a new organization was created, the Hitler Youth. The Hitler Youth predated 1933 by almost a decade, being founded in the 1920s as part of the SA. The objective of the group was to cause greater involvement in the Nazi movement among young boys, who would then go on to be important supporters of the party in their later years. When Hitler came to power, the organization expanded, although membership was not required until 1936. Even before it became compulsory, many joined due to it being very clear that it was the best path for their future. After 1936, any parents that tried to keep their children out of the youth organizations could be sentenced to prison time. The term Hitler Youth is a blanket term for a system of youth organizations which young boys at the age of six would begin participating in. The first such organization would be populated by boys between the ages of six and ten. This was seen primarily as a precursor stage. It would be at this time that records would begin to be kept of the young boys and their physical progress and ideological adherence, but it was also just a way to make these groups a part of their lives. At age 10, things got a bit more serious. 
After passing several tests, the young boys would be admitted into the young Volk. At this point, they would swear an oath to Hitler, which would say, quote, In the presence of this blood banner which represents our Fuhrer, I swear to devote all my energies and my strength to the savior of our country, Adolf Hitler. I'm willing and ready to give up my life for him, so help me God. We are born to die for Germany. End quote. After another four years in the young Volk, at the age of 14, the boys would officially enter the Hitler Youth, at which point their training shifted in a decidedly militaristic fashion. At the age of 18, most would either go into several months in the National Labor Service or directly into the army. The core values of what boys were taught during this time was summarized by Thomas Childers like this, quote, Militarism, nationalism, racism, and Fuhrer worship, along with the martial virtues of duty, obedience, honor, courage, physical strength, and ruthlessness, there were many unintended consequences to the creation of the Hitler Youth. It created behavior issues both at school and at home, as many members felt that they were above such discipline. Academic performance also suffered as so much time was taken up by these outside activities. The program did certainly achieve its goals, though. It allowed the government to spend 12 years feeding constant propaganda and indoctrination to German boys in their most formative years. Young boys were not the only ones brought into these types of organizations. At the age of 10, girls would join the Jungmädden, or Young Girls. They would spend four years in the organization before transitioning to the League of German Girls from the ages of 14 to 18. And then afterwards, they would also spend some time in the labor front. In some ways, the training and activities done by girls in these organizations were similar to what boys were doing of similar ages, and there was a similar emphasis on physical activity and education in Nazi beliefs. Along with this, there was also a clear emphasis on the expected role that these young women would play in the Third Reich, which, in, which was an emphasis on having children, preferably a lot of them. Speaking of children, there were more attempts to keep young girls out of these groups because of the reputation that they had for producing pregnancies. This was mostly attributable to the six months of service in the labor front that the young women would do after they turned 18. There were reports of many pregnancies that resulted from the fact that the labor front camps for both young women and young men were often located very close together, often in rural areas. I was a young man once. I know how that ends. And I'm sure you do too. In a nation like Nazi Germany, where access to birth control of any kind had been curtailed, and after being told for most of their lives that the greatest contribution that they could make to their nation was to have babies, well, mission accomplished, I guess. It would get so bad in some camps that they would have to be closed due to how many women were getting pregnant, and the rumors of these events caused many parents to try and find ways to keep their daughters away from these activities altogether. In March 1939, the government would put in place a law conscripting all young Germans into the appropriate Hitler Youth Organization, essentially treating the act the same as military conscription into the army, and removing any real control that parents had over the experiences of their children. Thank you for listening, and I hope you will join me next episode as we discuss the infamous Nuremberg Laws, which took anti-Semitism in Nazi Germany to a new level, and also we'll discuss how some foreign powers viewed the events that were happening in Germany, with a special emphasis on the French view from across the Rhine.